Today's scripture is John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were able, not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out, of, out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with the fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. Great to see you all. Thanks, Jason, for reading God's word to us. This is an amazing passage that we get to look at today together as Christ's people. These words especially ring out. They went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Nothing. Those are evocative words because they remind us of all the times that we have worked hard over something and achieved nothing. Perhaps you know that feeling. I'm sure all of us have experienced it. There's the student who works all night on a paper and then looks up to see that spinning wheel of death on the laptop screen. All the work is lost. Or there's the entrepreneur who dreams and hustles to build this new business, but has to shut it down within a year or two. It feels like a failure. Or the teacher who's doing her best to instruct their students through a, a, a Google Meets screen and, and feels like nothing is really getting through to these kids. Or there's the parent who feels like they've spent all day cleaning up messes that little kids are working even harder at messing up again. Or the homeowner who spends a precious day off working on a do-it-yourself project and it goes nowhere. Or the job searcher who sends out hundreds of resumes and goes on interviews and it all leads to nothing. Or the mentor who pours into a young disciple only to see that disciple turn away from God 
or the young man who's been fighting addiction for months and has been doing so well only to relapse on a random Friday night. We've all experienced the futility of work. That sense that, that our time and our energy and our money have all been wasted. In the words of Ecclesiastes, we ask, what has a man from all the toil and strain with which he toils beneath the sun? Sometimes you feel like you have nothing to show for all the toil and all the strain. What do we do with that? What do we do with that sense of futility? This final chapter of the Gospel of John can help us. So I want us to look at this scene and find help from our Lord. And the first thing we want to see here in response to the question, what do we do with that sense of futility in our work? We need to see this. One, the Lord sees your work. The Lord sees the work that you're doing. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth I should say, has just risen from the dead. He's already appeared for, to his disciples twice. And he's about to do it again. And the first two times when he appeared to his disciples, they were locked in a room, afraid. And now, in chapter 21, seven of those 11 disciples have all ventured out onto the Sea of Tiberias. They're about 75, the sea it is, is about 75 miles away from where Jesus, their Lord, was killed and buried. And they're out on that Sea of Tiberias because they've gone fishing. And we might ask the question, why fishing, of all things, now? Chances are these guys weren't just looking to relax. This isn't a fun fishing trip to just kick back and enjoy the sunshine. These men were fishermen by trade, after all. This was work for them. And some people have even said that what's going on here is that these disciples were abandoning the mission that God had given them. Jesus had sent them, and they said, no, we're going to go fishing instead. That's what some have said. So that in verse 3, when Peter says, I am going fishing, and the other six respond, we'll go with you, some have said they're, they're basically done with this whole apostle thing. But really, there's, if you look at the text, there's no indication of that. There's no indication that Jesus is calling them away from fishing and saying, no, 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 don't abandon the mission that I've sent you on. We can assume that they were abandoning the mission, but there's no indication that John gives us that that's the case. Fact is, we don't know why they went fishing. They may have needed money. These were fishermen, after all. They may have needed food. In any case, they went out at night, which may seem odd, but I found out recently that this is actually normal. In fact, it was, it was an ideal time for fishermen to go out and catch fish who had, who had gathered together at the bottom, deep down at the bottom of that sea. But this time, this trip was pointless. They were out all night, John says, and they caught nothing. Imagine that. All night, not one fish. Work can feel futile, like a waste of time. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. He speaks to them. But, but this is what I want us to see. Before Jesus said a word, he was already watching them. Before he spoke, he saw. He looked on. And when he spoke, he didn't rebuke them. 
He didn't say, what, why are you wasting your time fishing? I've sent you to go make disciples. What are you doing out here? No, instead, it seems that Jesus looks on approvingly. We might not know why they're fishing, but Jesus knows exactly why they're out there. They may have felt like it was a pointless, wasted night, but he doesn't think so. He sees their work. Look at what he says in verse 5. Children, do you have any fish? And that could actually be translated differently. It could be translated this way. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? Because he knows they don't have fish. And he's about to fix that problem. But, but don't speed past that word, children. Because what we need to notice here is that Jesus is watching them like a father watches his kids. A father who delights in seeing his kids apply their effort. Who loves to see them try and keep trying. Even fail and then try again. If you're a parent, what does it feel like to see your child try hard and keep trying? What, what does it feel like to see your little, little child try to walk and fall down and try again? Or, or try to stay up on that bike? Or better yet, if your children are older, what does it look like, what does it feel like to see your child work hard to practice a sport or a language, or, or memorize lines for a school play, or learn a new instrument, work on a school project, any kind of dis difficult task. What does it feel like when you, see, you walk in and you see your kids zoned in, using the gifts, the talents, the energy that God's given them to work on something? Don't you enjoy that? I enjoy that. When I see my two-year-old son trying to build a tower or, or try to carry around, my, my son has become best friends with a pumpkin for some reason, and his two-year-old keeps picking up this pumpkin. It's bigger than his head, and he just carries it around, and he calls it pumpkin pie, and he carries it around, and he'll put it on the, on the table, and he'll just kind of pat it, and he'll say, Dad, pumpkin pie, and he'll carry it around. I don't know why I'm del I delight in that. It's ridiculous, but I get so much joy out of seeing this little boy work hard to lift this thing like a little power lifter and carry it around. And when he drops it, he tries again. When my daughter's building a, a little house out of Legos, when my older kids are working on a school project, there's delight in that. Simple joy. One of the benefits of uh, this new hybrid, virtual, and in-person school situation that some of us have going on is that we get to see our kids. I get to see my middle schoolers and my, my middle schoolers and my high schooler in class, working hard, sometimes. How do, how do you think your father observes you at work? When, when your father sees diligence, when your heavenly father even sees failure, what do you think he does? Do you think he shakes his head? He looks on approvingly. Your work actually matters to him. Get this, your work may matter more to him than it does to you. I know we all feel differently about our work. Some of us, maybe we love our work more than Jesus does. I don't know. Maybe that's a problem. But for some of us, we don't love our work as much as he does. He looks at it 
with approval. To him, it's not futile. It's not wasted time. And I hope that helps you. I don't know if that helps you. Does it to know that your Lord sees your work and he approves? Even when your work isn't going well. Does it ever feel purposeless? Maybe when your work is going well, you're succeeding. This is the worst. When you're succeeding and it still feels purposeless. Another form to fill out, another phone call, another Zoom meeting, and and you, you look at it and you think, I'm not changing the world here. Does it really even matter? What's the point of learning algebra, I've been asked recently? I don't know. I think it matters to Jesus, though. Here's the point. The Lord sees. He's looking. He cares. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. You see, the Apostle Paul locates meaningfulness in work when it's being done for the Lord who sees, who watches, and who approves. Your work has meaning because it's for him. You may be serving others as well, which is wonderful, but ultimately it's for him. So so that's why there's this call to, as Christians, there's this call to diligence, this call to integrity in our work because it is for him. But here's another way to look at it. Your work has purpose because he cares. Not just because he's watching, but because he cares. Listen, even when no one else may care about your work, even when your work seems to go unnoticed, promotions are handed out and you're passed over, or someone else even gets credit for the work that you've done, or you work hard and people don't seem to think it's even important. Again, going back to my two-year-old, I'm sorry to use so many parenting illustrations, but it was on my head this week. I go, I watch my two-year-old building this little tower, and I care. I don't know why I care. The tower is going to get knocked down in a matter of seconds, and I'm going to probably have to clean it up. And yet it matters to me, and the higher it goes, the prouder I get. My daughter builds a little summer house for her imaginary friend out of Legos. It matters to me. You see, Jesus looks on you as you work, and he invests your work with meaning because he sees and he cares. You're not just wasting your time. You're not, you know the, the myth of Sisyphus, who is punished by having to push a boulder up a hill and watch it come back down and push it back up. You're not Sisyphus. You haven't been punished to just do the same task over and over and over again meaninglessly. Work is a gift. From the very beginning, it was a gift. Just like everything else in that garden where God placed Adam and Eve, they were all gifts, including work. And certainly because of sin, work has been corrupted. It's been cursed. It's gotten so much harder, and it feels futile because of that curse. But all the more why we can't forget our Father's approving eyes as he sees us labor. You might feel uh, frustrated with your career. Jesus is not frustrated with your career. He's not. He sees his children laboring away, and he's proud of them. Proud, not in a sinful way, of course. Proud, in the same way that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 4 could look at Christians and say, I take great pride in you. 
Why? Because he sees their faithfulness. He sees their diligence. He sees their growth and maturity. And he says, I'm proud of you. If a sinful man like the Apostle Paul could be proud of these disciples, how much more is our Father delighted when he sees us laboring? Some of you maybe grew up with parents who consistently found fault with your work, whose attitudes always seem to be, do better. And so you do better, and you show them, and the response was always, but I think you can do better. This is not Jesus' posture towards any of us. Instead, he approves of what he sees. He approves of the diligence he sees, even though he knows it's not perfect diligence. He knows some of those disciples maybe were snoozing in that boat when they should have been helping. He sees that maybe some of them didn't work as hard as they could have. This is what Jesus does. He looks at your work, he approves, and he helps. And that's the second thing we need to notice here. First, Jesus sees your work. Two, he can prosper your work. The Lord can actually prosper your work. Look at verse 5 of John 21. It says, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were able to haul it. They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So here's another reason to work as unto the Lord. Because the success of your work is up to him. By the way, he's not any more impressed when you succeed than when you don't succeed. He wasn't any more impressed with his disciples when they hauled up 153 fish than he was when their nets were empty. Why would he be any more impressed with them? He's the one who put the fish there in the first place. He is pleased that they obey him. By the way, it was probably hard for them to obey in that moment because they don't even know it's Jesus yet. All they see is a stranger. They've been noted. Think about this. You're, they're out on the sea all night, and then a random stranger on the shore says, hey, try the other side. You think they all just received that with joy? I would think if I were there, I would wonder, who is this person to tell us? Of course we've tried the other side. We've tried both sides. We've tried all four sides. We've been here all night. But they're humble enough to actually try it, or maybe desperate enough, I don't know, but they try it. And he prospers their work. Their work is not impressive to Jesus in the sense that the catch is not impressive. He's the one who did all the heavy lifting here. And yet he still delights in their work and he prospers it. And this is not, of course, this is not a promise that Jesus is always going to prosper our work. He doesn't always do that, does he? Or that if he doesn't prosper your work, it's because you didn't trust him enough. That's a false gospel. It's a very popular form of a false gospel. Some people call it a prosperity gospel. It says that basically if you work hard enough and you believe enough, Jesus will prosper everything that you do. Like King Midas, it'll all turn to gold as you touch it. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't owe it to you to give you success in your work. But he can if he chooses to. 
And he always chooses wisely, whether he gives you success in your work or he doesn't. You know, Jesus could have just as easily called these boys in from the, from the, from the sea empty-handed. It would have been okay. We're going to see that in a moment. He had a meal ready already anyway. But he chose not to. He chose to give them the joy of seeing their work lead to something. Children, do you have any fish? Maybe when you read that, there's an echo in your mind. There was for me an echo of a question that Jesus asked a while back in John chapter 6. It says in John chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus is right by the same sea, by the way, and it says he lifted up his eyes, and then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's the feeding of the 5,000 is what it's typically called. And that question that Jesus asks in that moment, he knows there's no food, and he knows there's, not, and there's nowhere that they can buy enough food for 5,000-plus people. But he asks the question anyway, because by asking the question, he helps his disciples see how empty-handed they are. And then he provides all the food they need and more. That's the question he's asking here of these disciples in John 21. He's helping them see that they're empty-handed before he overwhelms them with this abundance of provision in the form of fish. And what he's reinforcing for them, again, is something they taught way back in John chapter 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But you're not apart from me. You're not without me. Some have said that this passage is specifically about evangelism. It's about the work of mission, of making disciples. After all, in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus calls uh, disciples to himself and says, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so some have said what John is talking about here is specifically that. He's saying that God will, Christ will empower us to carry out the mission of expanding his kingdom, making disciples, bringing people to himself. And I think that's true, actually. It affirms what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he's talking about how one person plants the seed, another person waters, right? Someone evangelizes, shares the gospel. Someone comes in and, and, and shares more about that gospel or comes and encourages a better understanding of that gospel. One person plants, another person waters, but it's God who gives the growth. This passage affirms that. They worked all night, but Jesus had to come and give the growth, give the success. But what I want us to see here is this passage isn't just about evangelism. It's not just about making disciples. I don't think Christ wants us to separate our lives into the spiritual and the secular. Or, or this is my job over here, and this is mission over here. Jesus says to these men, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So that means that they and we, as Jesus' disciples, have been sent into the world the way that he was sent into the world. Do you think that Jesus split his life up into the spiritual and the secular? Like, this work here, this is for my father. This is kingdom work over here. But this over here, this is just my job. 
just the thing I do, my nine to five. I build stuff, carpenter. But, the, but, but then there's the spiritual work I do over here on this side. No. You and I were sent into this world like he was sent into this world as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So we've been sent to work in the name of Jesus, to serve others in the name of Jesus, to speak of his grace, to speak of his resurrection, to speak of salvation in his name. But none of those things are in their own compartments. Don't compartmentalize all this. If you're an attorney, be an attorney to the glory of Christ, an engineer to the glory of Christ, a scientist, a trainer, an Uber driver, a parent to the glory of Christ, a parent to the glory of Christ. That means that every aspect of what you're doing, if you're doing it as unto Jesus and in his name, he sees, he approves, he cares, and he can prosper that work whether it's building your business, helping your career along, bringing coworkers, family members, and friends into the kingdom of God via your witness to the gospel, to him it's all together. It's all part of living as his ambassador in this world. You see, Jesus, when he sees you at work, he's not just interested in how many times you've shared the gospel. He cares about your faithful presence in the workplace, which involves and includes sharing the gospel. But it includes much more than that, doesn't it? Your faithful presence in the workplace, even when it feels heavy and pointless and it feels like a grind, he sees it and he's interested. Look at verse 4 again of this passage. It says, Just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's this contrast between darkness and light, nighttime and daytime. It would be interesting. I, I think you'd find it interesting if you went through the Gospel, just kind of skimmed through it, maybe, maybe did a, a search using a Bible app, looking at the occurrences of light and darkness, day and night in the Gospel of John. And what you see is this amazing contrast where night seems to symbolize something to John. It seems to mean darkness, the feeling of hopelessness, sin and despair. And it's into that darkness that God says, Jesus came as light, and the darkness was not able to overcome the light. So here, day is just breaking, and Jesus appears on the shore. There's an encouragement for us here. There's encouragement for us to work through the dark. I don't mean to work all night and not sleep, all-nighters. I don't, I don't encourage that at all, although I'm guilty of them. But the idea here is that after the darkness, he revealed himself, just like what happened at the resurrection, when Mary Magdalene is coming to the garden where the tomb was, just as day broke. It was a sad, dark night for her and for the other disciples who had lost their Savior to death. She comes into the garden, and as day breaks, who's there? Jesus appears. And so it is for us as we work through dark periods with the hope that day will break and we'll be able to perceive him again. 
we'll be able to see him again. There's encouragement for us here to work through difficult seasons, to put, keep pushing in faith. This applies to evangelism, of course, but it also applies to all of your work. Daybreak is coming. There's the eternal daybreak that will come when Christ appears finally when he returns, but, there, but there's more temporal daybreaks too. When, when, when things brighten, when you start to maybe see a little bit of more fruit from your work, maybe you land that client or, or, or you, turn, you, you reach a turning point in your career, or you see someone that you love come to Christ and you have the, the joy of seeing them come to Christ and baptizing them, maybe that's the way day will break. But even if, even if it doesn't happen that way, Nevertheless, you have the hope that the darkness will turn to light. Jesus will make himself, he will reveal himself to you. You will see him to be your provider. Even if your work isn't going as you expected, that dark season has lasted longer than you expected, whether it's a season of unemployment or it's a season of of terrible market or a season of just really boring work, You have the hope that you will see Christ revealed. He will make himself known to you as your provider. There's the last point. One, work is futile, certainly, but one, Jesus sees it. Two, he can prosper it. And then lastly, he calls you to come and rest and eat. The Lord calls you to come and rest and eat. Look at uh, the, the, the chapter, verse 7 of this passage. It says there that the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said, that's John, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. He recognized Jesus on the shore. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards, which to me seems pretty long to actually swim. Peter swam a hundred yards to shore. And here's the best part of the scene, for my money. Verse 9 is where it takes a turn to to become even more beautiful. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught that you have just caught, even though he was the one responsible for the catch. And and I think this reveals to us something of the the, the heart of Jesus towards you. He's so generous. He's so kind. He looks and he says, bring the fish that you caught. I've got fish here. Yeah, but bring what you worked on. He's like a father that uh, lets his kid think that he made that basket or he knocked down all the pins with that bowling ball when He's really the one who behind the scenes made it happen. He lets his kid think that he blew out all the candles when really it was him. He does all the heavy lifting, and yet he commends us for our work. As if to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's willing to share the credit, (laughs) the honor, the glory with you. That's his heart towards you. How often do we think of Jesus looking at us at our work that way? Look at verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard 
and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, to be exact. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. He prospered their work so much that they couldn't even handle it. It was hard for them to get it on board, and yet somehow they had the capacity to deal with the growth. I don't want to read too much into all this, but I think that's significant, that he helped them to deal with this astounding, abundant growth that really, to them, probably seemed like too much. You ever experience, you pray for a blessing in some area, you pray for growth in some area, but then you get two more than you can handle? Like, you really wanted that job, and you prayed for it, and you got it, and now you find out that, my goodness, I'm drowning in work. This job is too much. I really want to get into med school, but I didn't know it was going to be this hard. It's too much. And yet God comes along, Christ does, and he provides you with the capacity to actually handle, by his grace and by his strength, not your own, the weight of all that work. It's often too much. I love having a big family. I'm very happy to have a big family. I've prayed to have children at different times, but sometimes my wife and I feel a little overwhelmed. I was listening, my, my daughter and I were watching a comedian recently named Jim Gaffigan. He said he has a big family too. He has five kids. And he said people sometimes ask him, what does it feel like to have a fifth child? And Gaffigan's answer is, imagine you're drowning in an ocean and someone comes along and hands you a baby. That's what it feels like to have a fifth baby, he said. And I can relate to that to some degree. And yet, at the same time, and now put, put, put your situation into that. Wherever it is that you feel like, It's a blessing, but Lord, this is a lot. I can't handle it. Isn't Christ able, the same one who prospered you, is he not able to come and give you the resources, the strength, the community in some cases to help you bear the weight? He's so good. Remember, we said he he didn't have to prosper their work. There was already fish on the fire. There was a whole meal right there, warm bread and all. And this shows us, it shows us, look, even if the Lord chooses not to prosper the work of your hands, he produces it with his own. Even if he does not prosper the work of your own hand, he will produce for you with his own. He may not produce everything you desire and all your dreams, but he will produce for you what you need Has he ever not done that for you? Our job, of course, is to trust and obey. Trust and obey. And also to, with contentment, receive whatever he has for us. Way back in John chapter 6, when when Jesus was near that same Sea of Tiberias, and he saw 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus children and, and women as well, who all needed to eat, what did Jesus do? He asks the question, where are we going to get food, knowing that he himself was going to provide it? But what does he also do? He includes a little boy. He says to that little boy, bring your lunch, bring your fish and your bread. I don't need it, but I will delight in using it. And that's what he does. And I believe this is also a truth that we can apply to our own work. Christian, he doesn't need your work, but he delights in using your work. Whether it's your nine-to-five job that feels more like a -a 24-hour-a-day job, or it's ministry that you're engaging in, it's discipling 
It's loving and serving others. Whatever it is. He doesn't need it, but he delights in using it. And what I love more than anything else is this invitation. Come and have breakfast, he says. Come and have breakfast. To his fire, he invites them to this meal that he had prepared. We've seen this sort of scene before. We saw it back in John 13 where Jesus serves his disciples after washing their feet. He loves eating with his friends. The Lord loves to see his friends sitting and resting and receiving what he has provided for them, what he gives you. No matter how old you are, maybe there's someone who you know who just loves feeding you. You go to their house, maybe it's your mom, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe who's someone, it's an aunt, it's an uncle, whoever, but they love just seeing you enjoy the food that they've prepared for you. Jesus delights in this. It's his heart. And he welcomes them to the warmth of his fire. He knows the sea was cold. The world is cold. The workplace can be especially cold and scary and frustrating. He invites you to sit, recover, get warm, and be reminded that that out there, the sea, the workplace, that's not where you live. This is where you live, with me. He knows, who knows, what these men, what their plans were for later that day. Maybe they were planning, we're going we're gonna to haul all these fish on shore and head home. Or head to the market. That's another reason that fishermen used to fish during the night at this time. Because if they fished during the night, they could get to the market early before the other fishermen and sell their fish quicker. But Jesus says, no, 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 you're not going to market, you're not going to home. Come here. Sit. Stop. Pause. And Eat. And this is a word to any of us, especially any of us who idolize our work. Any of you who are tempted to never stop working. The word breakfast here, it it means the, the first meal. But for these disciples, it wasn't just the first meal of the day, it was their after-work meal. So it was kind of like breakfast and supper, right? Because supper, in biblical times, was the, the meal you eat when the work is done. Breakfast you eat before the day begins. This is both for them. As we begin our days and as we end our days, we need to sit with our Lord. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing of value. You can try to carry out your calling in this world without active dependence on Jesus. You can try. Whether your calling right now is as a student, or a friend, or a parent, or a spouse, or a discipler, or a leader, or any occupation, paid or unpaid, that you can put in there, you will fail. Even when it looks like you're succeeding, and by the measures of the world, you may be considered a success, but you will not succeed in carrying out the calling that God has for you in this world apart from active dependence on him. You'll forget that he sees you as you're working. You'll forget that he's the one that prospers you if you don't sit with him and get fed by him and rest with him every day. 
And, and the more you neglect that time spent with him, the work will get heavier. The hours will feel darker. Apart from time around that fire with Jesus, in his word, in prayer, in worship. We're hoping to begin, as Brian mentioned earlier, we're hoping to begin taking the Lord's Supper again soon. We were actually hoping to do it this week, but the rain stopped us because we're eagerly anticipating the, uh, the opportunity to do it next week outside, right out here, right out here outside the, the, the atrium under that tree. We're hoping to get together as a gathered people who are here in the service to go out there and take and stand masked and dis- distanced as we are in here and take the Lord's Supper in a safe way with uh, bread or wafer and cup that have all been uh, very carefully um, monitored, that have not been touched by anyone, that have, been, um, that have been individually wrapped. It'll be a strange way of taking the Lord's Supper for sure. But I'm hoping that even as we take this very <laughs> sterile-feeling Lord's Supper, that it won't be sterile to us, that we will have in our mind even visions of this fire and his people around that fire eating and drinking together with him and with each other, enjoying that community of fellow laborers, siblings, with our Lord who sees us approvingly and and longs to sit and eat with us. That Lord's Supper is one means by which Jesus calls us to sit and rest with him and receive from him. And it's been too long. It's been nine months now, eight, nine months, since we've last taken the Lord's Supper as a church. It's been too long. That's one more way that I believe the Lord is calling us back to come and eat with him. By the way, what we're also going to do is for those who are not here on Sundays for this this in-person worship gathering, we're going to run a second session, a second uh, Lord's Supper service at about 4.30 for anyone who's at home and would like to come here strictly for that outdoor short Lord's Supper service. And that Lord's Supper service will basically consist of prayer, serving the elements, a reading from Scripture, taking them, singing a short hymn, all masked, and parting ways. But in that simple ordinance, that simple sacrament, we hope to experience something what these disciples experienced around that fire. So here's a question for you as we wrap up. Have you been sitting and eating and warming yourself with Jesus? Because the invitation is still open. Has work become an idol to you? Have you started to find your identity in it? Jesus is calling you loud and clear, come stop, sit, eat. Jesus was standing by this very same body of water. I said it in John 6 when he said to the crowd, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And a few verses later, Jesus says to those same people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. We can all too easily cut ourselves off from him and work for bread that doesn't satisfy. He keeps calling us back. 
This simple invitation to breakfast. It's a call to, to find rest for your souls. It's a call to stop worrying. Where's the food going to come from? Where's the money going to come from? He's saying, come and have breakfast. It's a call to fill your stomach with what really satisfies and to actually enjoy the presence of your Lord. What are you going to do as this work week begins? How about on Tuesday? As, as election results are counted, as ballots are counted, as results come in, the days following, what are you going to do? Will you, will you, will you receive this invitation to come? As a church, let's come and sit and warm ourselves and eat with our Lord. By the way, he calls them children because they had been given the right to be called children of God. John 1 says that that right to be called children of God comes to anyone. It becomes yours if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have received him, John says. And so if you have not seen Jesus as Lord, if you have not received him as your Savior, as your Lord, the takeaway here isn't, hey, go work hard, be diligent, and work for Jesus. No, I would say the best thing you can do is swim hard towards Jesus. Kind of like Peter did. That's the work you need to do. It's the work we all need to keep doing, swimming back to Jesus. Because in John 6, 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. This book of John, is we're coming to the end of it. We've been in this for so long. And what we're finding is that it ends just as it began. Back in John 2, Jesus is at a party. He provides wine because it's lacking. Here at the end of the book, he provides fish because it's lacking. Food. That bridegroom in John 2, he failed to provide for his wedding party. These disciples failed. They all showed up empty-handed, just like all of us show up empty-handed. And Jesus sees. And he blesses their inefficient work. And he invites them, and he invites us to come and sit and eat. So New Hope, as we return to work this week, we're going to find that work can sometimes feel futile and purposeless. It can feel like a grind, can't it? <laughs> but know that your Lord sees, and he prospers your work when he wants to, and even when he doesn't, he'll provide, and he calls you to come and rest and eat what he has for you. We have nothing to prove to him. We have nothing to prove. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your heart, as it's revealed to us, melts our hearts. As we see the, the generosity, the love, the care that you have for us, Lord, it's forgive us for not trusting. Forgive us for thinking that sometimes you're disappointed or, or rejecting us or just demanding more. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to see you for who you really are. And we pray that knowing you for who you really are would lend purpose and meaning to the work that we do every day. In Jesus' name, amen.